Well, today is today is Transfiguration Sunday, which is, as I told the children, is also Metamorphosis Sunday. Um, it is it is this uh, recollection. It is a celebration in the church where we remember something uh, remarkable that happened, something that is recorded in, in three of the four biographies of Jesus. There are four biographies: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is in the first three. It appears in all three of them: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it may even be behind. Um, what John says at the beginning of his gospel, John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, people speculate that that maybe is what John's getting at. The word he uses is one for uh, face-to-face seeing. It's not a, I, I think I saw this thing, um, I, or I understand now, but it was actually a, I see. So people have speculated that. And um, Peter refers to it, in his letter, um, he says, He, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So it is well attested in Scripture uh, for all its remarkable character. It is in uh, three of the Gospels, one of the letters, and maybe even a fourth Gospel. So it is an important event, and yet at the same time, uh, it's never interpreted. No one says, here's what you're supposed to do with that. Here's how you take that out into your daily life. And so we're kind of left to figure it out. And it's an interesting passage to me as I look at it today because it answers a question that Jesus has just posed. Uh, earlier in the in the middle part of our chapter, Jesus has posed this question. He asks his disciples... Who do the crowds say I am? He says, who do, who do they say I am? And the crowds, uh, the, according to the disciples, they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So this is high praise. They're telling Jesus, you know, it'd be like if you told a scientist, um, some people say you're another Einstein, some people say you're more like Isaac Newton, other people say you're a real Galileo. This is high praise. He's saying, you know, the crowd really thinks very highly of you. But then Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter, probably speaking for the group, he says, more than that. He says, you're not simply a prophet who tells us what God will do. You are what God is doing. You are the promised king that that God has told us would come someday. You are the thing that God is doing. You are the Messiah. So we've heard some answers, but then comes the transfiguration, and we hear another answer. Because where the crowds thought that Jesus was a prophet, and the disciples thought Jesus was the Messiah, we read in the Messiah that his his uh, clothes became uh, uh, the Messiah, the transfiguration, that his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, and these two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared to him. And um, as the men were leaving, Peter said, uh, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. I think what Peter's doing there is he's saying, okay, I got it wrong. He's not the Messiah. He's just a prophet. We're up on a mountain. Um, these guys are up here, recognizably prophets. I don't know how you recognize Moses or Elijah. They've been long dead for this time. But Peter seems to be scaling back. He's saying, okay, um, Elijah spent 40 days on Mount Horeb. Um, uh, Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. 
we better settle in here. This could be a long wait while Jesus gets whatever talking he needs to do done. So he says, let's build you some shelters. He says he did not know what he was saying. And so he's re-invoked the question, who is Jesus? Is he, is he the Messiah? Is he one of those prophets who's going to be here for a long time? And while we're wondering, a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And the, when the voice was spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. So we get an authoritative answer. The answers of the crowd, the answers of the uh, disciples have truth in them, but they don't have the authoritative character that the confirming sound of a voice from heaven has. So who is Jesus? This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So what do we listen to? He says, he says, who Jesus is, he is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. What do we listen to? Well, surely the answer is the entire witness of Scripture to Jesus. Everything that the, the Scriptures tell us about Jesus, everything that we learn Jesus said to us, we should listen to that. But I think our eye is drawn to that middle passage, right? The questions were posed uh, at the beginning of the reading. Who, who do the crowd say I am? Who do you say I am? And then they're answered at the final part of the reading. But in the middle is that troublesome passage we just kind of glide over, where Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. I'm not going to tell anybody. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And see, we don't have the trouble with this the disciples did. We kind of get that. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, Easter, Holy Week, Good Friday. Heard it all before. I know how that works. I got that one, Jesus. So we have no trouble understanding that. And we don't even have much trouble at the end of this passage. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. We don't have trouble with this because we're not standing there. Right? So we don't have to worry about exactly how that worked out. Some people say that what Jesus was referring to was that same set of events of Holy Week, the 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 uh, rejection by the elders and the chief priests uh, being killed and on the third day being raised to death, that they saw the inauguration of the kingdom of God when that happened. Other people say, no, it's this transfiguration we're about to come to, that the very next verse is going to tell us about how Jesus was transfigured. But it really is kind of, I, I'm, I'm fine with either one of those because we weren't standing there. And Jesus says, some who are standing here will t- not taste death. It's like, okay, well... However that got sorted out, we're okay with that. So kind of the beginning we get that, the end, okay, sure, fine, whatever. But then he says something to us. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Well, we'll come back to cross, but just deny yourself. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Who, who likes to deny themselves? You know, Lent's coming up. Give up something you love. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's one of those things. Jesus, I'm not sure I get you there. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose 
or forfeit their very self. Don't settle for the whole world. Because the world, as the James Bond saying goes, is not enough. Don't settle for the whole world if it means you have to give up who you are. And then he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. What could he mean by that? Why would we be ashamed of Jesus? I mean, I don't know about you. I am ashamed of Christians. I'm ashamed of Christians all the time. You know, I see the bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen it before. Driving around, you see the bumper sticker. It's a picture of Gandhi, and it says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. And I go, that stings. I'm embarrassed by Christians. My guess is you're embarrassed by Christians, too. If you think about it, there have been times in your life when you wanted to say, yeah, but not all Christians do that, or, or that was a long time ago. Christians don't do that anymore. You can probably think of things, you know, the, the Inquisition, the Crusades, colonialism, the Westboro Baptists outside of some soldier's funeral or a pride parade. There's probably been times when you said, yeah, but that's not all Christians. You know, So let me encourage you, just take another moment and tell your neighbor about a time when Christians have embarrassed you. So... So I think it's easy for us to, to think of something, you know, the, the crazy uncle, something like that, where we say, yeah, you know, well, not all Christians. Uh, this is a book by Dan Kimball. It's called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And I'll just read you the table of contents. He, he's saying, why emerging generations? So he's talking about the tail end of Gen X and the beginning of the millennial generations. He's saying why these emerging generations are changing. And he says this, this is what emerging generations think about the church. And you can probably at least imagine why that might be the case, even if you disagree. He says, number five, it's the table of contents, chapter five, the church is an organized religion with a political agenda. Number six, the church is judgmental and negative. Number seven, the church is dominated by males and oppresses females. Number eight, the church is homophobic. Number nine, the church arrogantly claims all other religions are wrong. Number ten, the church is full of fundamentalists who take the whole Bible literally. And he addresses each of these, and I'm sure you can think of others. Maybe you, you mentioned some other things that where you kind of gritted your teeth and said, you know, I don't know if I should speak out here, but I really wish that They wouldn't tip the waitress with one of those little phony $20 bill tracts. It drives me nuts, and I'm sure the waitress doesn't think very highly of Christians when she gets it. You know, you can think of those things where you say, I can understand if Jesus had said, embarrassed of my followers. But who's embarrassed of Jesus? We like Jesus, but not the church. Well, I think that there's two things that Jesus is talking about here. The first one, frankly, none of you do this, so you can walk out and say, I'm already halfway there. Okay, this is not going to be a problem for me. I won't have any trouble this week making Jesus happy in this one area. You're not going to be embarrassed of the cross. See, we don't think of the cross the way people used to think of the cross. For us, the cross is a a religious symbol. It's an ornament. People have necklaces that have a cross. We decorate our buildings with crosses. 
So for us, the cross is just a cross. It's just, we all know what they are. There's a cross. We don't understand what the cross meant to Jesus' first hearers. We understand, Hollywood has helped us out here, we understand the cross was a gruesome and painful way of giving people a slow and excruciating death. The word excruciating actually means excruciate from the cross. The word excruciating refers to just how bad it was to die on a cross. So we get that. Hollywood has helped us. We see the the, the flogging and the, the gore and the, the blood. We understand that. The cross was painful. But what we forget is the cross was also shameful. We don't have them anymore, but maybe some of you have been to like the colonial village, you know, the living history exhibit on the East Coast where they showed you the pillory or the stock, right? Where you've seen the the little thing where the tourists can get a picture, you know, kind of with your hands stuck in the holes, right? That's what the cross was. It was a place where you were exhibited to the world before you died. And it would have been the most shameful thing to die on a cross. In fact, you couldn't be crucified if you were a Roman and a citizen. Only slaves could be crucified. If you were a citizen and Caesar got upset with you, he could have you beheaded. He could have you burned alive. But he could not crucify you because crucifixion was reserved for slaves. And it was a come down in status to be crucified, even if you were a conspirator that Caesar wanted to get rid of. We miss this. We don't understand how embarrassing it would have been for the first century Christians that their leader, their God, was crucified. I don't know... Um, I have a picture, but I'm, but I have lost my confidence in the deck of slides. There's no pictures? Okay. Well, we know about a, a first century Christian named Alexa Memnos. We don't know much about him, but we know about him because there was a graffito found in a, in a building in Rome that was dated from the second century. It's the Alexa Memnos graffito. You can look at a Wikipedia page on it. Um, in ten minutes it'll say even more. Um, no. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you think Wikipedia is truthful. But but there's a picture there of the Alexa Memnos graffito. And what it shows is it shows a man on a cross with a donkey's head. And next to it, it shows Alexa Memnos, who is venerating the cross. And it says, Alexa Memnos worships his God. It's saying, what a fool Alexa Memnos must be that he would worship a God who got himself crucified. What kind of God gets himself crucified? And so Paul, in his letters, he begins his letters saying things like this. Paul says to the Corinthians, well, somewhere Paul says to the Corinthians, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says that he proclaims Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Greeks and Jews, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. This is lost to us. We read Romans, we read 1 Corinthians, and we go, 
okay, I've never been ashamed of the cross. And we just miss what Jesus is saying here. So you're already passing the test. You're not doing what Jesus warned you against doing. So good for you. But there's one more thing Jesus says. Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And that's harder. Because I think a lot of us are ashamed of our words. Let me give you one more quote of, of not our words, Jesus' words. This is from Brinning Manning. Manning. You may not hold a lot of stock. You know, Gandhi may not be who you look to for advice, but Brinning Manning was a, was a Christian writer of the last century. He said this, This is what an unbelieving word finds unbelievable. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What do I mean? You can probably think of things. All the times you've said to yourself, well, Jesus probably didn't mean that. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, he probably didn't really mean it like I have to love this person. Jesus said, don't be angry. Jesus said, do not judge. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus said, if you get a divorce, you commit adultery, and the person that you divorce commits adultery. And we go, yeah, but he probably didn't mean that. What Jesus meant was that he loves me, and he did. But Jesus says, if you're embarrassed of the words, if you're embarrassed of what he taught, then he will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory. That makes it a lot harder. So I will end with some good news. One of Jesus' followers, one of the people on the mountain that day, did exactly this. When Jesus was on trial, Peter was was accosted by a middle school girl. She said, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And he said, I don't even know the man. Jesus doesn't say, that's it, I'll write you off, you're done. Jesus says, I will go on loving you, and I may be able to rehabilitate you, but yes, I will be ashamed. I will be ashamed if you are ashamed of me. So we know that there is always forgiveness with God. But if you're wondering, when Jesus returns, is there anything you can do to make him kind of go, yeah, Luke, yeah, well, yeah, he's one of my followers. (laughs) That's how. Be embarrassed of him, which you're probably not going to do. Or his words, which I think we all do. Lent is coming. Let me encourage you to be part of our Ash Wednesday service this Wednesday. It's a place where we can actually begin thinking what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to begin repenting on the ways that we are ashamed of Jesus' words, and to begin claiming the new life that he offers us. Let's pray. Loving God, 
you have confessed Jesus to be your son and instructed us to listen to him. But it's so hard to do it ourselves. It's easy to see it when somebody else is taking some phrase out of context and misapplying it, saying hateful things, justifying their own greed. It's so easy to see that in other people, Lord. But we pray you would help us to see it in ourselves, to not be ashamed of Jesus, but also not to be ashamed of his words, to live them out knowing that there is always forgiveness. But only for those who acknowledge they need a Savior. Lord, we give thanks that we have one in Jesus' name. Amen.